Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's Panel Beater in the studio with Neonatal Dilemma and Dr Sharma. Good morning all. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Health and well-being in check? Yeah, yeah, about Somewhat. there. Yeah. <laughs> Does yeah, that just yeah. simply mean caffeinated? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes, wow. in that case. <laughs> Very healthy. Thriving. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. Um, we've got a, a, a fabulous... Uh, we've got two guests. In, in person. In, in person. This is a uh, post-COVID co- post first. Yes, exactly. 2019. Yeah, Speaking oh. of 2019, I think that's the last time we had one of our guests back on. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Speaking of which, and who is that mm. one? So we've got the the wonderful Dr. Kate Grigorovich, who um, has written a new book and has come to tell us all about it, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, what's it called? So it's called Before Dementia, 20 Questions You Need to Ask About Preventing, Preparing and Coping. And I believe it's actually out now for you get to your grubby little hands on. So um, she's going to come and tell us all about it and um, answer a few uh, exciting questions about dementia. Yeah, I think the last time we had her, she was on the phone and we were talking about ageing, weren't we? We were, yes. Yeah. 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 And Dilemma, you've got somebody lined up for us as well. Yeah, a little bit of a different um, thread to dementia, but um, we are very lucky this morning we're going to have a chat with Professor Susan Nielsen about the North Richmond Medically Supervised Injection Room and the decision that the room will become a permanent fixture. And so we'll have a chat about about that, which I'm really looking forward to. Simultaneously, as we're told, that the, the CBD option may not go ahead. It's not locked in. Mm. It's not set in stone. That's right. Yes, not of yet. Oh, not maybe, yet. maybe they can call it a trial and give it a go just no. like they did with Richmond. <laughs> I, I'm actually hoping to have that language of trials and stuff passed with, uh, with Dr Nielsen, trying to understand. Because my understanding, even with Richmond, is that they, aren't they, quote-unquote, extending the trial? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, at what point does a trial <laughs> just become permanent? <laughs> Uh, we'll ask her. Yeah, yeah, we will. We will. We will. That's well. That's what they say, say about my time here in radiotherapy. <laughs> yeah, you're still on probation. I'm still on trial. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we go through the uh, the spreadsheets at the end. Uh, yeah, Doctor yeah. School. You're doing all right. The average is dropping a bit lately, but uh, yeah, today's your opportunity. Lift your game. Hey, and at the uh, tail end of the show, um, uh, time permitting, going to chat to you guys about this. Uh, very old school self-help book from 1934 called You Can Master Life. Mm. I need this book. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's, yes, and one of the things I'm looking forward to discussing is, is, it, is with, when it comes to self-help and these the books of this nature, um, is it a case of the more things change, the more they stay the same? Mm. Um, uh, we would expect, surely, that there'd be something different about the way um, self-help gurus speak in 1934 compared to 2023, but maybe, maybe not. So mm. Looking forward to sharing a few of the gems out of that book. Um, hey, but, um, Neo, just before the show, you were... You were drawing attention to a very interesting unfolding mm. story about junior doctors getting all uppity. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> there's nothing new about that. Um, 
But just over this past week, the um, tens of thousands of doctors in the United Kingdom have t- taken part in a 72-hour no-work strike. And they're, it's all based around what they call full-pay um, restoration in that they haven't had a pay raise since, get this, 2008. So the, the doctors of today are being paid the same as the doctors of 2008, not accounting for inflation. Wow. And inflation um, in the UK is much higher than here. Mm. So that's just a slow and steady erosion of their of their wages now to the point where a junior doctor can be paid as little as £14 per hour, uh, which is just uh, insane thinking about the, you know, the, the pressures of the NHS, the amount of training that these doctors go through, and then to try and live in London on £14 an hour, um, I imagine it would be quite difficult. Mm. So they've taken part in this this three-day-long, 72-hour strike where basically all of the junior doctors have dropped off their work. Um, they've said, we're not coming in, and they've picketed outside of hospitals, uh, which is just an, an amazing sight to see. Like, you know, it's... It, and. When I say junior doctor, it's a bit of a confusing term in, in that it is everyone below the level of consultant. So it's everyone below the highest level. Right. So those highest levels have then had to step down into the junior doctor roles, which, I mean, it may have been something that they haven't done for the past 25, 30 years and don't actually really know how to to do these junior doctor roles because they are they are distinctly different from... Um, from what they do on a day-to-day basis. Well, that's the thing, is that, And the, these, you know, quote-unquote junior doctors, doctors in training are the absolute backbone of mm. hospital-based medicine. I imagine the seniors don't know how to do a lot of mm. really basic things. This is coming from one of those seniors speaking right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the palpitations of getting at the, the thought of being a resident of yeah. chart medications. Oh, goodness. Chart medications, discharge summaries. Oh, goodness. Ward <laughs> rounds. Throwback. <laughs> so... Um, I mean, I the BBC... It's a decision that's been made lightly. No. Like, there's, obviously, there's going to be huge ramifications from a strike in terms of cancellation of appointments, clinics... Absolutely. And ...procedures. So I imagine this is, you know, this has been a tipping point of a, a kettle that's been boiling for a long, long time. Absolutely. So they're, they're asking for a 35% pay rise, which is... Um, Again, fairly significant. And in this strike, the BBC is estimating that more than 175,000 patient appointments and procedures have had to be cancelled across England, huh. um, which is not a small undertaking no. and it's not something that we like doing. Like yeah. junior doctors, the reason we get into medicine is not the money, it is to um, provide good health care and you know, pursue something that we love doing. But when... when and you know, a few of these doctors in the in the UK have said have called medicine an expensive hobby, because it's actually uh, huh. it's actually costing them money mm. to go to work because they have to pay for childcare, yeah. mm. and that's that's. Well, there's no wonder why the NHS doctors are jumping ship and moving moving to the, yeah. the sunny country of Australia in such big quantities because. Mm. It's, that's not sustainable to... Yeah. Is, is there anything at all similar brewing with that sentiment here in Australia? Well, I think in, certainly in Victoria, there have been really big advances made in the EBAs mm-hmm. in the recent years. I, I kind of look at how what junior doctors are getting now and, you know, really try not to, to you know, use the phrase, mm-hmm. but back in my day, <laughs> things were much worse. But, but you know, I think the, the positive side of it is we feel really happy for some of those advances that are being made. Also, there's a class action suit yes, going on right yes. now mm-hmm. for unpaid overtime for years and years. 
So a lot of that's you know, kind of changing here. But I also like the, the the fact that some of the senior doctors are being reminded of just how demanding these roles are. Mm. So there's a, uh, a cardiologist in the UK who's a really well-known medical YouTuber, Dr. Rowan Francis, and he was posting his Apple Watch proving the, the amounts of sleep he's had in those 72 hours, averaging two and a half hours a night mm. is, is what he's, he's had. So, you know, it's a... I'd also be interested in the number of steps uh, the Apple Watch has counted. I know I can uh, hit 10,000 steps on a, on a busy Easy. shift. Easy. Easy. <laughs> and I think in terms of our conditions versus the UK conditions, I mean, we've had a lot of positive work from people, you know, back in um, the past 10 to 15 years, you know, going through beyond time and training who have paved the way for the conditions that we're currently experiencing. And we're currently paid well... And we have excellent conditions that, I mean, you know, can be tiresome during the long shifts and the long stretches. But compared to our colleagues internationally, we have some incredible um, protections and conditions and pay. So there's nothing from no, no complaints from my point of view from the current um, yeah. way that we're we're treated and protected. We've um, just had a text already come through. So, um, and the question is, can we give uh, a sense of what fourteen pounds actually represents? So, fourteen pounds is about twenty-five Australian dollars, mm. and twenty-five Australian dollars an hour in Melbourne would be for somebody working at a um, a well-established hospitality or retail outlet. We you know those hospitality retail jobs would be something like between twenty and twenty-five dollars, um, depending on where it exactly is, and then. That's twenty to twenty-five dollars, then for living expenses in a place like London, Inside. which I mean Melbourne's I expensive mean, enough as it is, but yeah, a meal out in 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 London. I mean, when I was there in twenty eighteen, I could not get one for fourteen pounds. Yeah, yes. yeah, right. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We are very privileged to have Dr. Kate Grigorovich in the studio with us. Dr. Grigorovich is a geriatrician and internal medicine physician and the author, author of a new book, Before Dementia, 20 Questions You Need to Ask About Preventing, Preparing and Coping. Welcome back to Radiotherapy. Thank you. Uh, so congratulations on the release of your new book. Could you walk us through the basics of what dementia actually is and a little bit about what inspired you to write this how-to guide to dementia? Yeah, so almost everyone knows someone living with dementia. It's sadly a really common condition and it's now the biggest cause of the health burden for people people in Australia 65 and older. But it's also something that you sort of should feel like you know what it is, but it's it's actually quite complicated. So dementia isn't one disease. It's many different diseases or processes that cause damage to the cells in the brain that stop them doing their job essentially of talking to each other, which means that people lose cognitive function to a point that it impacts day-to-day life. And it's something that's slowly progressive. So you raise some very interesting, ethical, ethically challenging questions in your book, one of which I'm sure many of our listeners with relatives who have had dementia have had to face, the idea of dementia, sex and consent. 
obviously there is no one answer that fits all situations, but how do you approach the situation of adults who are engaging in sex but may not necessarily have the capacity to consent? Yes, there's been a lot of increased awareness about the idea of capacity that, you know, you've got to, um, particularly for sex, that you've got to know, you know, who you're having sex with, you've got to be able to recognise them, you've got to know what you're doing, know that you can stop at any time. And this can sometimes weigh in in really challenging ways in older adults living with dementia. And so, you know, something which I've seen a bit of is two older adults living in residential aged care, and they might not actually be engaging in sex, but each thinks that the other is their husband or wife. And it's really challenging because sometimes for those people, thinking that other person is their husband or wife gives them a great deal of comfort. And they might, you know, hold hands and, you know, enjoy that, but that it can also cause a lot of distress to the family. And as it ultimately, they don't know who that other person mm. is. And so, you know, it's a really challenging area and like really challenging, you know, there are good bits about is that if someone's taking comfort, you know, in, you know, if it's just something sitting holding hands with somebody, mm. but then it can be distressing to see someone come in and see their life partner, you know, 50 years plus, not recognising them and thinking someone else is their husband. Mm. Actually, speaking of that, the idea of comfortable beliefs that may be false, how have we kind of shifted on that? Because I think back to maybe you know, a few decades ago, the idea always used to be we need to reorient anyone who's demented who, you know, you may think you're, you're, you're waiting at a bus stop for uh, that's going to take you to your mum's house. So that was a really frequent thing. And I remember so much of it used to be we've got to reorient these people, tell them where they are, etc. Is that still the idea that we bring them back to you know, truth or do we just kind of let them have their comforting beliefs, as you say? Yeah, there's been a real shift, I think, in how we do that and much more the concept of meeting people where they are. And so mm-hmm. what I'm kind of really understood a lot more from writing this book we're always using our memories every day to orient ourselves in time and place and person so if you walk into a cafe you've never been to before there'll be enough cues there that you'll pull out of your memory that you'll recognize it's a cafe and you will know what to do but people living with dementia they might not be able to pull the right memories or sometimes they'll have triggers like a strong emotion that brings up a memory that's false but for them they're really experiencing it and so if you try and correct people and tell them, you know, their reality isn't actually reality. It can cause them a lot of distress. And so what's often better and what causes less distress to the person, even to the person caring for them, is to meet someone where they are. And it can be really challenging. You know, one instance I remember seeing a woman, um, she had quite advanced dementia, she was holding a baby doll. Mm. And she was reliving this moment of holding her newborn baby for the first time. It was actually quite beautiful. But her... Um, her child, you know, adult child, was quite upset by it, the idea of their parent playing with dolls. And I see this quite a bit as well. Mm. And so, you know, I think on one hand it's, you know, you, you can enjoy the moment, can enjoy seeing these beautiful things. But then I think it's also important to acknowledge that it can then also cause some distress for the family members. Mm. So I guess that um, leads me well into the next point where these people with dementia tend to kind of separate themselves from where they are currently and go back to a period period of their life where maybe they're a new parent or um, they're waiting at a bus stop for their mum. But the idea of voluntary euthanasia and setting yourself up for the potential eventuality of of having dementia and losing the ability to consent is quite a difficult one because our laws kind of indicate that you have to have the mental capacity to understand your decision but also have a life-limiting condition in a particular set of time how does the field of dementia approach this 
Yeah, I think this is a really important conversation to have. Dementia is now, I believe, the second leading cause of death in Australia and will probably become the leading cause of death. And it usually happens at the long after a very long illness, so age 10 years. And so, you know, the decision someone might make for their health, you know, perhaps having an operation might be very different in the very early stages compared to the very late stages. And, you know, at the very end with dementia, people often can't walk around, they have minimal ability to talk, and they usually actually die of pneumonia. And there's a, these are very challenging conversations to have. Mm. Some people with dementia will be really happy. And they just sort of end up in this happy place and it's quite lovely. Some people end up quite distressed. And this is where, you know, sometimes we have to use medications to manage that distress, which has got a whole lot of other non-ideal issues. And, you know, the, the thing about where they, when someone's in that advanced stage of dementia, they don't have the capacity to make these sorts of complex medical decisions like voluntary euthanasia. Other countries that people do... And it's quite challenging reading about some of these cases because, again, even if they've planned it for themselves in the future, mm. they at the, when the time comes, they don't know what's happening. So mm. is this the right thing to do to somebody? And at the same time, you know, you don't want to leave your patient suffer if someone is really genuinely suffering. And so, you know, this question about, I said, whether people should be able to choose, I think is really complex and mm something I think as a society we need to debate because you also need to have protections in place. You know, you don't want someone to decide to have euthanasia early because they're worried they won't be able to choose it for themselves mm. later and miss out on some good quality years of life. Mm. So, you know, you need to have these protections. But even, and this kind of almost goes for everybody, it's also important to have conversations about, you know, when someone is towards the end stage of a disease, hopefully they have these conversations early, mm. what treatments do they want? What's an acceptable quality of life? What, you know, what would you consider going through to be alive versus, you know, I don't want to, some, a lot of people say to me, I don't want to be fully dependent in a nursing home. And I think it's one of the big problems we have in our society that these conversations are really hard. They're really mm. painful and they don't happen until often it's too late. So what's, what's current practice around that? Is there, a, is there a benchmark practice for those conversations to happen at a particular point with the clinician and the patient, the patient's family? I don't know if there's any sort of real benchmark. I think ideally people do have these conversations with their general practitioners as advanced care planning, but I predominantly work in the hospital environment and mm. all too commonly it's someone like me who you're meeting for the first time who's the first person to bring these topics up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Dr Grigorovich, in your book, um, I really like that you've taken a very evidence-based um, opinion as a, as a clinician writing, writing the book. You highlight some of the processes of ageing and the link to dementia. So we've seen lots of trends recently in the last few years um, surrounding the idea of um, preventing ageing with various remedies from things as um, benign as taking cold showers to uh, medicines like NMN and metformin, the traditionally a diabetes medication. From your point of view, um, what do you think the chance of these remedies putting you out of business might be? And what are some of the actual um, key takeaway points for listeners about evidence-based ways to, uh, to healthy ageing and to reducing their risk of, of dementia in the future? Yeah, look, to be honest, I'm not worried about my job security. <laughs> <laughs> not to be a downer. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's a fascinating space in some of the science. I think you've got to be really careful how you extrapolate this, though. The reality is ageing research, a lot of it is done on things like yeast or nematode worms because they don't live very long. Mm. And humans live a really long time, so doing experiments on our longevity is really challenging. And a little bit of a cautionary tale, the most evidence-based strategy 
is caloric restriction with optimal nutrition called mm. the crony. Mm. And they've actually done studies on this in some type of monkey that lives for 30 years and it mm. did extend their life. But it's pretty awful. Like you've got to spend your entire life severely restricting your calories. Mm. And there was one man who was the biggest proponent of this, wrote the books, and the poor guy died aged 79 of motor neurone disease. <laughs> oh. And so I take a very <laughs> I know, it's sad though. Like the poor guy, like he never had birthday cake, you know, pizza oh. like uh. and I take a very kind of balanced and yeah. pragmatic approach to it. You know, like I do exercise, I get my sleep, I eat my vegetables, but also acknowledging that I've got to enjoy the day. You know, you've got to have your fun. You've got to see your family, see your friends, go to, I'm going to a show this afternoon mm. because there's no hundred percent guarantees. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's it. So uh, what does the research tell so far in terms of preventing dementia? Is there anything that's known to work? Yeah. So probably about 35% of cases of dementia are preventable mm. and there's good evidence. So midlife is a great time to go and get your blood pressure checked and checked for diabetes and one of the reasons we're probably seeing a decrease, although we're seeing bigger numbers of people with dementia because there's more older adults, but the actual rates of dementia are going down a little bit, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. Because, and part of it's probably the improvement in managing the midlife cardiovascular risk factors, less smoking, higher level of education is good. Exercise is good for your brain. Getting sleep is good for your brain. Socialising, okay. cognitive challenge. Sudoku. hearing aids. Pardon? Mm. Sudoku. Well, well, anything yeah. that's a good cognitive <laughs> challenge and you enjoy it, go yep. for it. There's yeah. no kind of one prescriptive thing. I'm, I'm hearing my daily Wordle is really helping yeah. me now. <laughs> Still doing Wordle. Still doing Wordle, like it's 2020. <laughs> Absolutely. So basically the stuff you do to prevent any other um, mm. mortality. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And do, do we know mechanistically what the link might be between having good metabolic health, which is everything you're talking about really from, from diet and exercise and everything else, between that and dementia? Do we think that there's a metabolic process underlying? So a big part of it's your blood vessel health. Your brain's a very, very hungry organ. It's 2% of your weight and 20% of your energy usage. So if you're not looking after your blood vessel health, so you know if you've got high blood pressure, smoking things that damages the blood vessels really interesting links with diabetes and so diabetes is not great for your brain it can cause um again can cause blood vessel damage but if people have got insulin resistance because the brain's so dependent on glucose mm. then the brain with insulin because insulin lets mm. the glucose into your cells so it's not just your body that has the insulin resistance but also the brain so then the brain is relatively kind of not getting enough energy and so for some people with type 2 diabetes not type 1 then that is a really it's probably why they're a high risk of dementia okay using myself as a case study every time i uh, leave the house and i'm checking three four times that the oven's off or that i've got my keys got my phone um am i am i am i, am I doomed <laughs> no, no, you're not doomed. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the really challenging things in, in dementia. You know, we all have our moments where we forget things. And our brain, especially the really things like memory, is really hypersensitive. So if you have a bad night's sleep, your memory doesn't work as well the next day. Also, your judgment's not quite as good, you know. You're more likely to go and, like, eat a bunch of sweets. Mm. And so... Having, you know, these moments and things, it's often not a sign of early dementia. It's often a sign of, you know, needing to get a bit more sleep, perhaps thinking about exercise. Managing stress is really mm. important. And one of the big mimics of dementia in older adults is actually depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it can be very hard to tell them apart. And it's really important to rule them out and treat them so people can have optimal cognitive function. Mm. 
We've got a couple of um, uh, texts coming in, um, Kate. Um, just one now. Um, a listener saying that they have... I'm hoping I'm getting the pronunciation correct here. Um, Eilers Danlos syndrome, low blood pressure and poor vascular function. Are these the sorts of things you're talking about um, that people are worth keeping an eye on? I'm not aware of any links between Eilers Danlos syndrome and dementia. I haven't come across any research for that. So I think I would, um, yeah. I'd be reassured sure. that it's not a link. Um, perhaps uh, a brighter piece of information has, has come in from a listener who's drawing attention to the opening of a dementia garden trail in Ballarat. Have you come across this? No, I haven't. That sounds lovely. Yeah, it, it, uh, I just—I uh, haven't had it obviously just coming through, but we've been sent a link to it, and it looks like it's a um, a nature walk um, for therapeutic purposes. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And one of the things I'm really hoping with this book is to bring out in the open that we need to make a more dementia-friendly society, mm-hmm. because right now. People don't know how to act when someone asks the same question over and over or perhaps behaves in a way that they don't feel is, um, you know, socially appropriate. And we just – there are a lot of people out there living with dementia and a bit of understanding goes a long way to making their lives better. So on that point, I mean, I've seen admittedly before I entered paediatrics during my my practice, I have saw a lot of amazing carers looking after people with um, dementia – and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are caring for um, you know, parents or loved ones with dementia. What are your words of wisdom for those who might be in that situation? Yeah, so one of the things I think it's challenging in the dementia space, there's this a lot of talk about living well with dementia, and it is important. There are some people who um, are living with dementia themselves and have perhaps been well for a very long time and are continuing to um, talk. But what I want to say is that there are a lot of people who are having a hard time mm. and it's important that we talk about and that we validate these tricky emotions. And I see a lot of people often ending up in acute hospitals with dementia because their carers are burnt out. Mm. And if we don't talk about these difficult things, we don't create better services. Mm. You know, the last thing someone who's living with dementia needs is an acute hospital ward. Yeah. So- and so, but we need to have conversations about what carers are doing, what supports carers need so, you know, they're often acting as advocates for the person they love mm. so that we can, as a society, meet this need, provide better care and help people have better lives when they're living with dementia. So not only putting money into the actual dementia services, but money into carers and respite services and ways of ensuring that longevity. Even just with the money, it's more co-design. Mm. You know, it's a lot of design in health often can be a little bit top down. Mm. And I've got a lot of ideas, but ultimately you need to bring the consumers in at the very beginning and through the entire process to mm. create the right things in health. Excellent. Well, Kate, well, thank you so much for such a um, thought-provoking discussion. Where um, can people find your book, Before Dementia? 20 questions you need to ask about preventing, preparing and coping. Yeah, it's widely available in bookstores. Excellent. Well, go out, go out and get your hands on it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
We have a second guest in the studio this morning. It's Professor Suzanne Nielsen, who is a pharmacist and a researcher with a passion for reducing drug-related harm in our community. Professor Nielsen is the Deputy Director of the Monash Addiction Research Centre in Melbourne and joins us in the studio this morning. Welcome, Susie, to Radiotherapy. Thank you. So this, where, or earlier this month, um, our Premier, Dan Andrews, announced that Victoria's first uh, medically supervised injecting room, which is located in North Richmond, uh, will be providing an ongoing service after a, re- a review found evidence that the room has um, has really helped a, a number of um, vulnerable people in our society. What did the report show? Um, it's the second review of this centre and we know these are often very controversial services that have a lot of evaluations. The second review is very consistent with the first finding that many lives were saved but also there are many other health benefits. So, for example, people often will go on to other kinds of health services from their exposure to a health service like a medically supervised injecting room. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think those main benefits of lives saved and, and other health benefits for people who use the service are fairly critical. What are those other health services? Are they located within uh, a medically supervised injecting room? So the the medically supervised injecting room is actually co-located with the community health service. So they have all kinds of um, primary health care services there, including dental services, hepatitis C treatment. They have treatment for drug addiction. So um, really strong evidence-based treatments like methadone and buprenorphine. People can access those and be referred basically next door from from this uh, supervised injecting room. So that kind of co-location is pretty important in the benefits that people experience. So how um, uh, good has the uptake been of people, presumably they're coming in to... To, to, to use uh, the substance you know, in a supervised way, how successful are is your facility saying, hey, uh, while you're here, you know, for, let's look out for the rest of your health? Uh, are most people interested? Are they persuadable to, yeah, to so, seek out? Yeah, there's a couple of things about these services that I guess are important to understand. Number one is that we know that the people who use these services are some of the most marginalised people in our communities. They've often um, had really significant histories of trauma and ongoing traumatic experiences that that they're exposed to through um, living um, in and around people who are injecting drugs and often, you know, on on the fringes of society facing a lot of stigma. It takes a reasonable amount of time to build trusting relationships with people who've been um, judged so harshly by society and often are not been very well supported by society. And so that's one of the things that these kinds of services are amazing at. They build relationships over time. It's not the first time that someone walks in that it's like, right, let's get you off to treatment. Mm -hmm. It's often many months of building rapport and trust. And that's the kind of thing that will mean that when someone maybe is in a space, they're like, I'd like to make a change. They know where to go. They know where to ask. And particularly when that service that might provide treatment is right next door, that's a really good model for having people progress onto care. Um, I've seen numbers um, suggested around 700 people have actually entered addiction treatment mm. um, directly through their attendance at the medically supervised injecting service in Richmond. We actually have decades of research around these services from other parts of the world as well. And so it is actually quite well demonstrated that many people will end up reducing their substance use following mm 
engaging with a service like this. So it is not, it's not uncommon to see that as a trajectory, even though it's not a requirement of attending the service. And that would actually be really kind of counterintuitive mm. to say that you have to stop your drug use if you come to the service. <laughs> so that's not the way it works, but just by developing those relationships and being able to offer that information and advice at a time that is appropriate for the person. And I heard our previous um, guest here talk about meeting people where they are. Mm. That's mm. absolutely the foundation of the way that these services work. Just taking a step back, could you walk us through what actually is involved in a medically supervised injecting room? Like door-to-door, what are um, the users experiencing? Yeah, they are... Look, there are different models around the world. Um, The model, which is kind of pretty similar across the Melbourne and Sydney services, is that essentially people will come into a reception area. um, They register, although it usually doesn't require um, identifiable information to register, but you will have a file there, so someone who attends and re-attends and maybe has medical notes will be attached to that record, um, but it can be anonymous, your, your attendance there. Um, once you've registered, um, depending on how many people are waiting, you can either um, often go straight through or you may need to wait for a short period of time to an injecting booth. These are um, facilities that are set up to be sterile and easily cleaned and, and you know have all the equipment that people need to inject as safely as possible. Um, they, there are, again, different models, but sometimes it'll be a booth where one person might go to inject. Sometimes it'll be a booth where two people might go, for example, a couple. Um, when you're in that space where people are injecting, there are medically trained staff on site, so that if something goes wrong, if somebody overdoses, they're able to respond very quickly. Um, that obviously happens a minority of the time. Most of the time, um, people don't overdose and they're able to... Um, inject, but in inject in a, in a safe space where they don't have to rush and they can minimise any damage to themselves because of that safe space and because they have all the equipment they need. Um, there's often a third, um, I guess, stage with these services, which is kind of an aftercare area. So after someone's um, finished injecting, they're able to move through to an area that's, uh, I guess, a little less clinical, a little more social. Um, quite often services will have things like food, you know, a tea or coffee, um, health resources, health workers that you can chat to in that sort of aftercare area. And that's often where a lot of the um, time is spent, you know, being able to engage with like other aspects of healthcare and, you know, social aspects for people. You mentioned earlier how uh, they can, people can often be a bit counterintuitive, uh, the, the idea of, you know, obviously allowing people to inject safely. Well, in a supervised way, in a safer way. Uh, one of the things that often comes up is, you know, community's concerns about policing, etc. and yet I would have thought that having that area policed is actually, again, one of those things, counterintuitive. Is there a bit of a, uh, an understanding with law enforcement uh, just locally about the area, about how much intrusion and, and supervision from police is good versus bad? Yeah, look, in general, with not only these services, but also drug and alcohol services, needle syringe programs where people are able to access sterile equipment, there is generally an agreement with law enforcement that if they're waiting for people outside the front of those services, that's going to stop people using the services and really prevent all the benefits that we know um, are very well established to happen through having these services. So there is generally an agreement and a close relationship with law enforcement to not over-police those areas. Having said that, we know law enforcement still needs to do their job and respond to any any events that are happening in the area. So that can be can be a tricky balance to get that right. 
Yeah, right. And then just quickly, I wanted to ask. Uh, I understand the the trial for Richmond has been is extended. Is it now made permanent, or is it just an extension to the trial? So, what was um, announced earlier is the a commit to, commitment to making it a permanent service, um, and. Obviously, those of us who are familiar with the evidence and how well these services work are very excited to see that commitment. Um, we know that the service in Sydney, I think, was in trial status for oh, well more than a decade. So it was a trial that just kept being extended and kept being reviewed. So it is, um, I think, a positive thing that you know the evidence is in and it seems very clear that the benefits from this service are established mm. and that commitment to making it a permanent service has been um, announced. And when we talk about trials, for example, the, the trial that was being held for Richmond and you know, proposed for other places, are the trials to... Because you're saying that on one hand there's decades of research, it kind of makes it go, well, what do we need the trial for? What is that trial actually for? Um, so these services um, and harm reduction services in general tend to remain very controversial. Mm. So the idea of just um, establishing a service, despite the decades of evidence showing how well they work and having hundreds of these services around the world... Um, often there still does need to be, um, you know, to satisfy the community an assessment of the effect of having a service and, and how that service is run and ensuring that there are benefits. So it's not mm. uncommon to see that trial phase first, even mm. though there's so yeah. much evidence showing that these services... So it's less work. a medical trial, more a community acceptability trial. Yeah, well I, well, I guess measuring the outcomes and implementation of it in a particular site and members of that community would probably want to see those right. outcomes. Yeah, it's both. Okay. Professor Nielsen, I'm interested to know if um, uh, your thoughts on other harm reduction approaches, um, which are yet to be taken up um, in in Victoria at least. Um, I'm talking about things like um, pill testing facilities, which um, have been okayed in um, other states of Australia, but as of yet, um, if I'm correct, we don't have a similar facility in Victoria. Seems yeah. kind of um, uh, another counterintuitive type of... <laughs> of thing we've got going on here. Yeah, look, these um, harm reduction interventions are probably some of the most uh, controversial, partly because people who use drugs are some of the most stigmatised or the most stigmatised parts of our community. So we know even with methadone and buprenorphine treatment, these are treatments that are profoundly effective. They halve mortality. Yet wow. it took decades and decades to get the support to actually have those offered as legal treatments. We've seen progress with the medically supervised injecting room. Now we've had these trials that have been very closely evaluated, but now these services being recommended to be permanent. We're still, I guess, on, on the road to that um, acceptance with things like drug checking. We know there's actually relatively high support. Lots of states have either had festival-based kind of um, short trials of it or they've got a permanent service now in, in Canberra. Again, there are concerns. Um, these are generally unfounded, but people have these concerns with harm reduction that if we, you know, if it's not dangerous and if we make it easier, maybe people will use more drugs and that, that worries people. Um, we actually know from the research that if you reduce the harm around drug use, it doesn't make people more use more drugs. People are going to use drugs in our communities anyway, mm. but what we can do is make it safer for them. And particularly when we're talking, you know, maybe around young people in, in music festivals... We know most people actually will age out of, of kind of drug use at music festivals and keeping people safe while they go through those periods of their life when they're having fun and doing those things. Um, you know, if, you know, those lives once they're lost, there's nothing that we can do. But mm. most of the times those people won't go on to use drugs into their, you know, 50s and 60s. It's a very short time in someone's life. So um, 
but it's just getting that understanding that mm. these things don't contribute to worse outcomes for people. They just reduce the harm. So what do you think the barrier is then in introducing those services in Victoria? Like we've got this brilliant medically supervised injecting room that's now becoming a, a permanent fixture, but we seem to be lacking in other more evidence-based facilities. What do you think is the barrier? Why is there that, that disconnect? I think it takes a long time for, to get community support. And I think because often people don't understand the evidence behind harm reduction and they're concerned, you know, you're condoning drug use, you know, like those kinds of arguments. We hear them all the time. I think we really need to bring the community along with the evidence of actually making drug use safe. It doesn't mean more people use drugs. It just means we reduce the harm and more people will be alive. So I think that's part of it is really just educating the community that, you know, we, are, we hear their concerns, but actually lots of research shows that those concerns are not supported by data mm. and, in fact, the opposite. And so what has the local Richmond community been saying with this trial going on for years? Look, people have probably been reading the newspaper and seeing that there are, you know, very divided communities often around these services. Um, we hear some very vocal stories. Um, I think what's important, again, is going back to the data and the decades of research, people are worried that maybe these services will attract people who use drugs or, um, you know, create problems. You know, I've been living in Melbourne for a long time. Um, mm. The street-based drug market in Richmond, and particularly in that North Richmond area, has been there for decades. It's mm. very well established. It was there long before the service was implemented. And when I was working in drug treatment services in the local area, you know, there were photos of people injecting outside that primary school before, in, you know, in popular media, before that service was established. Mm. So while we understand that it might be a conclusion people jump to, it's actually not evidenced. We know those problems existed beforehand. And it's better to provide, I guess, a discrete service where people are, you know, injecting away, you know, behind closed doors in a safe environment, given that that market and people were injecting, you know, very publicly in that area anyway. Suzanne, can you then help us understand, um, with the news that uh, North Richmond's ongoing, um, we also heard the news that um, there's certainly no certainty about the proposed CBD um, uh, facility and that that's got a report due mid-year or something of that nature. Um, what are the distinctions that the report is? Do you anticipate the import the report is looking at from Richmond, just three or four kilometres away? Um, look, I don't want to foreshadow what that sure. report will say in the middle of the year, but we do see some similarities. We've seen, for example, um, overdose mortality in that Richmond area really go down in recent years, but in the same period of time in the CBD, it's really gone up, and now it's actually surpassed what we see in that Richmond area. So there is good evidence that that is the right place, that that's where there is. We know there's a very kind of evident street-based um, substance use sort of behaviour going on in there and that that is where we need to locate these services. And I understand community concerns, but actually lots of research shows that having a place where people are no, lo no longer out and publicly injecting improves community amenity, but obviously choosing somewhere sensible, thinking through all of that, and also having time to bring the community along is helpful. We know in Sydney, for example, the medically supervised injecting centre is literally over the road from the train station there, and most people don't even know it exists. Mm, yeah. It's very, you know, it's, it's behind a facade. There's not a big sign out the yeah. front. But <laughs> these services, they don't have to have big flashing lights on them. Um, they just can quietly do the good job that they do and mm. take some of that... 
um, public injecting behaviour off the street and also save lives. Yeah, I think to, to that point in, uh, in Richmond, I saw a couple of texts coming to, to ABC and one was from someone saying, uh, this Richmond facility is very unsafe for the locals, etc." And another one saying, I work right next to, 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 to the Richmond facility. I haven't noticed it's been there for years. And the person saying that it's making Richmond unsafe lived in Ballarat. So I think it tells you a lot about uh, what people's perceptions are versus perhaps the reality of a well-run um, supervised injecting facility and hopefully that's going to quell some sensitivities when it comes to the discussion for the CBD. Professor Susie Nielsen, it's been wonderful to have your expertise on the show this morning. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Just in the last couple of minutes, our, our tale of the show frivolity this week is looking at a 1934 book called You Can Master Life. Effectively, a self-help book of its day and age. Um, and uh, so he caught my attention and I thought, okay, what what can we find that's different about um, 1934 and 2023 self-help book? And I was expecting, okay, there's going to be obviously uh, a different age um, and time, you know, around the sorts of communities we lived in, you know, the diversity in communities, etc. Surely it's going to be different. Surely it's going to be different. And I kid you not, folks. If we took that um, uh, date away from the publishing in the in the first paragraph, it was remarkably familiar to the sort of self help that's going around um, at the moment. Particularly that sort of self help that's about um, what, what I guess you might call pop stoicism. You know, right. you know, you know. Um, it, it, we, you know, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so," uh, said Hamlet. You know, and and um, that kind of that kind of thinking. So let me just give you a sense of it. Um, I'm going to run you through. There's one really interesting table in the book, um, and um, and it's suggested that it it um, bounces off a famous famous Mark Twain quip, where he said, "I had a lot of worries in my life, most of which never happened." And, um, and then he breaks them down into these five types of worries. He says, worries about disaster, which, as later events prove, never happened. That's about 40% of my anxieties. <laughs> worries about decisions I had made in the past, decisions about which I could now, of course, do nothing. About 30% of my worry, anxieties. Worries about possible sickness and possible nervous breakdown, neither of which materialised. About 12% of my worries. Mm. That pie chart is filling up. <laughs> worries about my children and my friends. Worries arising from the fact I got these people. Um, I forgot these people have an ordinary amount of common sense. About ten percent of my worries. And the fifth one: worries that really have a, worries that have a real foundation. Possibly eight percent of the total. Right. <laughs> What And then he says, what of this man is the first step in the conquest of anxiety? It is to limit his worrying to the few perils in the fifth group. Eliminate 92% of fears or to figure the matter differently, it will leave him free from worry 92% of the time. So basically he's saying, you're anxious, stop being anxious. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's some good advice. I'll take that on, actually. Right, <laughs> stop so, being anxious. Yeah, but and, and, it, and it also rings uh, a couple of bells for those who have um, bumped into cognitive behavioural therapy as well, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's that kind of um, kind of thinking. So, but but that all said, um, there are a couple of um, a couple of critiques we can make. 
you know, it was definitely, um, again, something similar that's happening now. There's definitely an emphasis on individualism and personal responsibility. Um, and in other words, ignoring external factors like mm-hmm. job security, um, other other pressures that uh, people might be dealing with. Um, it definitely had some outdated language that we won't repeat on the, oh. on the airwaves. You know, um, certainly um, gender awareness um, and uh, and the like was was something that we can definitely say was different to 1934 and 2023. Interestingly, there was an emphasis on um, pursuing success at all costs, right? So that, that, that became... So it wasn't just saying, hey, don't worry about things that are outside your control. It was almost like deny that there's a problem, mm. you it's, know, and, and just be single-minded on competition um, and uh, success. Again, that's something that's not uncommon today in, like, this, you know, a little bit of a hustle mindset. You know, mm. you, you got to... Yeah, the gotta, Get a full-time job and then your side hustle. Exactly. Why are you not working 24 hours a day? Yeah. Um, there was um, uh, no no attention at all to things like equity and social justice. Um, and, yeah, and, and similarly to the point um, I made a moment ago, there was no recognition about privilege or systemic inequalities shaping... I guess that's just the, the self-defining genre of self-help, isn't it? It, it's, it, it's it really is. just down to you. And it's interesting to see that the framing, I think, still persists. Uh, yeah, and, a century later. And you're right, it, it, it displaces the blame from kind of the larger societal... Um, imbalances and and barriers that people may face in whether it be socioeconomic or racial or or gender based. And I, and I guess on the flip side in terms of the, the good off it and I'll be quick here. Uh, the you're right so much of it is just the, the same old stuff and that's not necessarily a bad thing. No. May, maybe there just are some eternal truths. Yeah. Probably nothing new has been said since Marcus Aurelius <laughs> and Seneca and maybe it's not so bad to repackage it in the language and sensibilities of modern times. Maybe so, maybe so. Hey, that brings us to time. It's been great having you um, with us, dear listener. It's been myself, panel beater, Dr Neo, Dr Dilemma and Dr Sharma and uh, we thank our guests, Dr Kate Gregorovich, talking about dementia and uh, Professor uh, Suzanne Nielsen talking to us about the safe injecting rooms down at um, North Richmond. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.